So we actually stopped in the middle of recording this episode, like smack dab in the middle, just to watch the debate going on on Thursday, the 22nd, right in the middle as we were recording, just just happened to be. I thought for sure we'd finished recording before the debate I, it's the fact. I was very it's the wrong. fact that we have way too much banter and... Um, we both, Mark, both, both, both sides are making way too many shitty jokes and tangents, and by both sides I mean me, um, which is okay. It's okay. That's that's um, that's the dynamic of this podcast. That's how shit works. Twenty episodes in, this is this is a regular occurrence. A highlight of mine was definitely the part where you said, "You think you're running against someone else? Well, you're running against Joe Biden." That was great. Loved that. Also, love when Biden said malarkey. Oh, yeah, he said the thing. He said the line. I haven't actually heard Biden say malarkey in public in a long time. He did. He said the line. Say the line. Malarkey. He also said, come on, man. A fair amount. Are you picturing the Simpsons meme in your head? Yeah, the the thing with Bart that, like, say the line. He said, come on, man, like, eight separate times. I know. know. It got me really jazzed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You got it. Yeah, the fact that he said he he won and he's up there and he's the nominee (laughs) because he disagreed with everybody. And then proceeded uh, to argue with Trump about who, who doesn't, who gives a shit about the American people less, for ninety minutes and and change, it was really, you know, a little, a little sad. And it was it was hilarious to me how that he just went like within an ass hair of saying we want Medicare for all, just without without saying the words. Like he's like every Ameri- like he- he's like healthcare is a right, and then also I don't want socialized healthcare, med- and I don't want Medicare for all. What 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 do you want me to do with this, sir? Yeah, I always, I always, I always struggle to understand what the actual political situation surrounding Medicare for all is because like okay, I understand that insurance companies are very influential in the like in how we get legislation done and like lobbying and everything like that um but like my understand and when it comes to electoral politics my understanding is that medicare for all is like a broadly really popular plan i've i've read statistics that say that medicare for all is more popular than believing in evolution <laughs> I, I don't i don't so I don't disagree. yeah no like seriously 70 percent. i don't have the exact the number in front of me, but it's like it's like 72 to 68 percent something like that yeah, yeah. We're on the same page so I'm always like a little bit floored at how unworkable of an electoral strategy it seems to be to run with Medicare for all. Like, I, I, you know, polling is polling is kind of a crapshoot, though, because it always depends on like how you explain it to the person. Yeah, exactly. He just doesn't want to use buzzwords, which I understand. The American public has the memory of a goldfish. And when they hear the word socialism, they immediately jerk their eyes roll back in their head. They speak in tongues. Um, just talking about red scare immediately back to McCarthy era. And then don't listen to anything you have to say after that at all. I actually think that his answer to the talk question was pretty based. Like he basically just said, uh, systemic racism like exists in this country and we have to take active steps to stop it, which like, Although I might but say also, more if I wanted to be more specific, that is exactly how I feel on the issue as well. So that's good, at least. <laughs> no, he did a great job of responding to that question, not because he said systemic racism yeah. is real, reverse racism is not real, two things would have which 
which I believe would have like put a lot of people off immediately, made a lot of people tune out, but he related it to like how you talk to your kids, which is a way better way to just format it. And also, I resent that I have to defend Joe Biden at all. Like like the whole whole time yeah. um I'm sitting there talking with my girlfriend about it or talking about it on Twitter. Um I, I just realize who I'm I'm defending and I'm like, God, I hate being put in this position, but Yeah. You know, such I mean, you such as electoralism. How did how did Nika feel? Nika um is she, she's having um like many Americans problems with insurance um, yeah. and trying to find um, providers that, that take her insurance of which there are not many. And um, hearing them, you know, he, he, hearing Trump say like, why don't you do this for eight years when he's the current president, he could do a lot of things. And Biden just be like, come on, man. Uh, it was really, really frustrating and upsetting. I know, I know. There's like, always like, there's always one line from the debate that you're just waiting for. Like I, the last debate when, when Donald Trump talked about how he's been going around to all these events and there hasn't been one problem. And it's just like, hey, you remember a dude named Herman Cain? Like, fucking hit him with that shit. That would mm-hmm. be so fucking good. And this time, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm disappointed this time that he didn't score a dunk about Donald Trump getting COVID because I've never seen because Donald Trump has never had more shit on his little doo-doo ass <laughs> in history. Like, like. <laughs> oh, he it, the the diaper was full. This this yeah, debate for sure. I just. Um, the man the man is at an acute angle with the floor at the at the end of the day debates mean basically nothing as far as like the actual course of the election goes anyway for the most part like that's that's the that's the that's the mindset you got to put yourself in is is because sometimes i find myself being overly charitable to conservatives when they debate just because otherwise i find myself constantly by surprised by how convincing some people find them uh and so i get really nervous sometimes when i find that trump is like even when he's saying something that's a complete lie and makes no sense and is contradicting a thing he said 30 seconds ago i still like my brain just goes oh this is so convincing to fucking dumbasses and they're gonna eat this shit up um but i don't know at the end of the day i think that it's probably going to move very little uh, as all debates do that said um I did like the muting. The muting was honestly a great idea. I didn't see them do a lot of muting at all. I I do think the moderator was better than a lot of previous presidents. I won't say good, but um, a lot like she allowed Donald Trump to talk over her way less, which I thought was pretty good. But you could tell, you could tell he was trying so hard not to, not to interrupt. Like he, 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 he had like very obviously been told like 18 times that day, like, don't you dare fucking interrupt. But then he did like right at the end because he's like, yeah, you know, let's throw caution into the wind. I mean, every debate has some interrupting anyway. He also said New York was a ghost town. I'm I'm not enjoying I'm I'm enjoying um living in this so-called ghost, ghost town, town right now. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Cause he, he thinks New York is just Manhattan. Dude, I love how I love I love like the idea that that New York 
can be wiped off the face of the earth by COVID. Like New York is here because it's at the mouth of a river and there's like a little island protecting it. Like it's just a good place for a city. <laughs> it's not going to go away. <laughs> yeah. All these people saying I um, just, like moving to Texas yeah. saying New York is dead. I was like, I, do you I'm really, yeah. I'm just commerce. really frustrated with Trump's lack of material analysis. I, I feel like if he maybe had uh, read more angles, he might have um, understood the dialectical forces that, uh, you know, place human resources in particular places. And then he Mark. might be able to have uh, more insightful comments to make. No, why Why the fuck would you read Angles when you can just watch Fox and Friends? Same, it's same, same fucking thing. So Sometimes true. I say something and I just see you <laughs> lose faith in humanity. Um, oh you gotta, God. yeah, the whole time I was watching the debate, I was thinking, like, like you said, you're being overly charitable to conservatives. I, I just remember, like, I just think about how, how fucking stupid the average person is. And then half of people are stupider than that. Yes. That's, that's George Carlin, isn't it? I don't know, but it fucking makes sense to me. It's true. Like that is, say. that is by definition, actually how averages work. So it's certainly true. Do you want to get into actual modern monetary theory and stop? Okay. Okay. Shilling for going... electoralism. Shilling for electoralism. God. Do uh, yeah. 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 Let's get back into it. And by get back into it, I mean get into it in the first place, because this is at the beginning of the episode, not two thirds of the way through it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, the okay. Spilled. Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Alex. And my name is Mark. Do you want to just, do you want to just start? Um, yeah, okay. Please so, end my pain and just yeah, fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. start. So, so today we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be talking about uh, something called modern monetary theory. So while it's maybe a little bit of a departure from the kinds of theories we talk about, it actually has theory in the name, which might be a first for the We Read Theory podcast. So that's, that's I think, something to, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of cool. That's kind of fun. Uh, we, can, we can work with that. And, um, yeah, uh, one You're of the on things... On the nose in a good way. Yeah, yeah, one of the... And, and one of the things to keep in mind is that uh, some, something that a YouTuber named um, Noncompete pointed out, he actually, he talked about uh, modern monetary theory in a video, is that um, while they didn't really uh, mention it, modern monetary theory was very much at the center of the Bernie Sanders campaign's economics and its economic plans. Uh, so, so when we're talking about like justifying social democratic policies and, and, and the like, Modern monetary theory is often at the core of how we understand what the government is capable of uh, when it comes to providing services uh, from the government for the people. So I think that's just a good thing to keep in mind. With that being said, one of the most frustrating narratives that gets spun about the U.S. government, which is the richest government in the world, 
is that it's basically always strapped for cash and can't even afford basic necessities for its citizens, like healthcare. And as leftists, we know this is totally ridiculous. We know that a single-payer system that runs without profit is inherently less expensive than a private one that, besides paying for health care, also needs to finance billions of dollars in yearly profit. We understand that the amount of taxes that would be needed to finance universal health care would be relatively small in comparison to the private costs we pay now. And of course, we know that even the people who peddle this talking point don't really believe it, since they're more than happy to shovel money into the military or towards fossil fuel subsidies. It's just health care that we don't seem to be able to afford. What a lot of us may not know, though, is that this whole argument is predicated on one really big misconception, and that misconception is that the government has financial constraints at all. Modern monetary theory represents an alternative to our present understanding of state finance, one that, according to its proponents, more accurately describes the processes by which a modern currency-issuing state functions. Modern monetary theory covers quite a bit of ground, but the most eye-catching revelation we can pull from it is that a strong economy that issues its own currency, whose currency isn't pegged to the value of another thing like gold or other currencies, has effectively an unlimited budget. A government like this, like the American or Chinese government, can spend as much as it wants and will never run out of money. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of adverse effects to spending money without covering your ass. But the point is that anytime someone says the government doesn't have the money or can't afford something, they're bullshitting you. Right, maybe we should go back to the beginning and show our work a little bit on this one. At its core, MMT is really about what defines money, where it comes from, and what makes it different from things that aren't money. The traditional answer to this questions, or these questions, uh, the one that I learned in classrooms while pursuing my econ degree, is something called metalism. This is a historical narrative about the invention of money in which people used to barter for things that they needed. Bartering means to trade one good for another good directly. This is an inherently pretty difficult way to conduct trade because it requires what's called a double coincidence of wants. You can't trade with someone else unless they have what you want and you have what they want at the same time. The emergence of money onto this scene was a matter of convenience. The cool thing about money is that you break that conundrum of the double coincidence of wants. Money is something that everyone always wants, and the fact that everyone wants it means that if you have enough money, you can trade it for whatever else you want. The benefits of this are plain to see, but the big question is this. How do we decide what gets to be money and what's just a thing you can trade? The medalist answer to this most important question is that money, at least at the beginning, had intrinsic value. Gold, unlike paper money, is inherently valuable. You don't need an authority to bestow value on it. It's gold. The problem with this whole approach is that it's not history. It's a creation myth masquerading as history. Like all creation myths, it's less concerned with being accurate than it is with conveying a message about society. So what is the message? The myth is doing a lot of legwork to support neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is basically the idea that markets are the best method we have for distributing wealth, and so the goal of the government should be to let markets function as much as possible on their own, and when markets fail, to regulate them through the creation of new markets rather than through the setting of direct rules. A good example of this would be like when we had companies polluting the air too much, and so we instituted cap and trade, which created a market for the sale between companies of the rights to pollute as opposed to just saying companies can't pollute this much. They have to do, they have to do certain stuff. 
So instead of taking that like direct regulatory route, we created a pollution market to regulate how much pollution there was. That's like a very neoliberal way of doing things. Yeah, the the capitalist Stockholm syndrome of capitalism with rules is always always possible and there's no other mm -hmm. possible solution. Yeah, when, when, when Elizabeth Warren said um, capitalism without rules is, what, what did she say? Capitalism know, without rules like, is she barbarism in. or something like that. Um, or is like theft without capitalism without rules is theft. I don't know, whatever it was. Um, it's actually very insightful because that's that's true. Capitalism is barbarism with rules. I remember everyone was just, yeah, no shit. We've had rules for a long time now. Go on. The traditional narrative about the creation of money tells two major lies to bolster neoliberalism. The first lie is that markets predate the invention of money. Now, money has been around for many thousands of years, but human beings have been manufacturing goods for many times that long. The barter story tells us that even before money, before nations, before cities, human interaction has always been just as transactional as it is today. This is very useful to neoliberals who advocate maintaining the transactional nature of our society. Markets are just how humans do things. We shouldn't try to change a fundamental aspect of being human. The second lie is that money was invented through market forces independently of the state. This is also a useful lie for neoliberalism because it once again feeds into the narrative that markets are a natural expression of individual human desires and thus should be left to work on their own with minimal state interference. MMT rejects this story entirely. In a paper entitled From the State Theory of Money to Modern Monetary Theory, an Alternative to Orthodoxy, economist Randall Ray outlines another explanation of what money is and where it comes from. Ray, along with other economists like Bill Mitchell and Warren Mosley, is one of the leading minds in the development and advocacy of MMT. Unlike the orthodox perspective we just went over, MMT places a special importance on the state and its authority in the creation of money. Through the power of the state, we can actually solve that big conundrum of the orthodox view, that being how you get such a large number of people to agree that a thing has value as a medium of exchange. We said previously that gold and other precious metals were chosen because they have intrinsic value. But do they really? What use is gold to the average person? Sure, gold can be used in electronics and certain kinds of windows use gold to reflect UV light, but gold has been valuable for a lot longer than those things have existed. And of course, gold is just one of the many substances historically used for currency. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of historical currencies are just sometimes like made of iron or whatever, or even like stone. It, it's, it doesn't, it isn't always gold. The state though, but Mark, has a special the following. <laughs> yeah. It is shiny. That's true. And, 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 and yeah, there are, there are aspects to gold that make it really good at being money, which is that it doesn't, if you leave it somewhere for a long time, it doesn't change. It doesn't become something else. Um, it's really hard to fake, and it and and the supply of it is is relatively stable. Uh, you can't just people can't just like find it in the ground constantly, um, which is good. Uh, but that isn't the same thing as having whole, of, like, being, of being intrinsically valuable. What? Isn't there a whole study that uh, tries to um, look into how to turn normal things into gold? It's called alchemy, and it's a fake science. It's not like a real thing. Ah. 
Well, no, of course, of course, it's not not possible. But alchemy, it's, it's alchemy is the Tesla try. of the eighteen hundreds. And okay, I'd love to hear the, yeah. the explanation behind this. It's just a fake. It's fake science that gives people unwarranted hope for the future. Oh. I wouldn't say Tesla's fake science. Elon Musk is a shrewd, no, disgusting no, no, businessman, but the work his people are doing just are incredible. Elon Musk, piece I'm of shit. Being, like battery efficiency is pretty pretty. I'm phenomenal. just in a spicy I'm just in a spicy mood today. What can I say? Me too. I just ate Taco Bell with Diablo sauce mm-hmm. and just like breathing fire right now, bro. Okay. I like spicy stuff, but I actually think that the fire sauce tastes significantly better. Yeah, I don't know. I just I feel like I just don't want people to think I can't handle Diablo and my like machismo <laughs> comes out in me and I'm like, okay, I gotta get the hottest one. Or else everyone in this Taco Bell is gonna think I'm a pussy. And there's nothing worse than that. So, like we were saying, um, there are aspects of gold that make it good for use as money, but those aren't really the same things as it being intrinsically valuable. A lot of things are good at being money without being intrinsically valuable. For example, a bottle cap is not particularly valuable on its own. But in the Fallout universe, bottle caps are actually a really reasonable thing to use as money because they're hard to falsify. They don't change when you leave them in one place for a long time. And, you know, it's not like there's bottle cap factories after the apocalypse, which I think is why libertarians like Fallout so much because it's kind of like the perfect... I think libertarians perfect, might like it just um, for the aesthetic. It's like the perfect distillation. Well, yeah, but but it's also like the bottle cap specifically is like this perfect dis- is like the perfect distillation of like the neoliberal myth, and of course, um, the entire Fallout series is obviously built on being hypercritical of U.S. like imperialism and 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 like kind of shining a light on the inequities of the 1950s that have been so heavily romanticized, uh, which is like the whole point of the game's aesthetic is that it's like 1950s retro futuristic u.s like nostalgia that has been wrecked by nuclear fallout it's the beauty and then the thing that it that it necessitated that destroyed it which is why fallout is actually based and very good uh but nevertheless libertarians will ruin everything like bioshock and fallout all the good video games and the witcher what other video games have libertarians ruined have Um... you never (laughs) Let's not. Let's me we're when really I was not playing Halo with you guys. You didn't ruin Halo. I think you I think I definitely ruined that game. <laughs> um, so, anyways, I, I suck at every single video game because I wasn't never had video games. It's okay. Uh, so okay, we're talking about the intrinsic value of gold and how it doesn't really have intrinsic value in the way that people in, in the way that it would have to in order to automatically be money in a in an environment without the state. Um, and it's really actually the state that has a very special power that allows it to bestow value on anything it wants. And that power is the power to tax or levy taxes. When the state does that, it's deciding that you're now indebted to the state and you owe it something. The state can do this unilaterally because it also has a monopoly on violence. I can tell you that you owe me a debt, but the answer I'd probably get from most people is, yeah, you and what army? What makes the state special is that it actually has an army. So when it tells you that you owe it a debt, it's more likely to get an answer like, okay, sir, yes, sir. A currency is actually created when the state decides you owe it a debt and then also tells you that you have to pay it in a very specific form. 
If you live in the U.S., for example, you owe taxes to the U.S. government, and maybe a fee or two. That has to be paid in U.S. dollars. As long as people assume that the government is likely to continue enforcing these debts, U.S. dollars retain their value. I think most people kind of understand that this is how it works today with our post-gold standard monetary systems. But the point of MMT is that this principle applies even to money that's backed by gold or another commodity. Materials and commodities, even those with a stable intrinsic value, are only money if they're accepted by the state to pay taxes and fines. A really important upshot of this is that while taxation gives money its value to begin with, it isn't actually necessary for a government to levy new taxes every time it wants to spend money itself. The fact that people already owe taxes means that whatever new money is issued by the government will automatically hold value, even if everyone is paying the same taxes as they did before. There are two major things we learn from all of this. The first is that the government cannot ever run out of its own currency. It can run deficits as much as it wants to, and as long as it retains the power of the state, the monopoly on violence, the money it uses to do so will have value. The second is that because the state can make as much money as it pleases, it isn't actually capable of saving money away for a rainy day like you or I might. If the government runs a surplus in which it taxes more than it spends, then it doesn't really make a difference whether the money is stored in a vault or just burned to ashes. And I don't just mean this in reference to physical money. Even if the tax revenue is just a number in a ledger, it doesn't matter whether it's recorded in some government account or just left blank. The ability for the government to spend money later is exactly the same. I think the most interesting aspect of MMT, though, is what it tells us about the idea of sovereignty. Sovereignty refers to a state's absolute power over itself. You know, it doesn't mean that a state has absolute power, but it means that nothing is above it power-wise. The power of the state is defined by its ability to use violence, but most of the time state power is actually expressed through the spending of money. If the state expresses power through the spending of money, and it creates the money it spends out of thin air, and guarantees that the money has value through the threat of violence, then the ability to issue one's own currency without a physical limit is totally essential to a modern state's sovereignty. In fact, it's the ability to issue a currency that ultimately distinguishes the power of a state from the power of a private company. A private company can spend money and thus express power in the exact same way the state does, but this power is inherently limited by the fact that they have to use the state's money, which means they have to go get it, either by earning it or borrowing it, before they can spend it. They can't express power without taking part in a system with rules defined and enforced by the state. But here's the real kicker. If issuing currency is what makes a state sovereign, what does that say about states that can't issue their own currency? There are various states around the world that either peg the value of their currency to the US dollar, or that just use the US dollar as their currency directly. Unlike the US government, these states are actually constrained in how much money they can spend. They're more similar to a company in that way. They have to get money before they can spend it. And if the money they use is dollars or pegged to dollars, then they have to get money from places where US dollars circulate, places where people generally need to US dollars to pay their taxes. And without a doubt, this is a form of imperialism. If a state doesn't issue its own currency, then its status as top dog within its own borders is only maintained as long as it has the most money. Its supremacy isn't structurally guaranteed. Now, the idea of a government sovereignty being limited sounds like a good idea, but let's remember that the state isn't surrendering its power to the democratic will of the people here. It's surrendering power to private firms and a foreign government. 
The degree of government power is the same, only now that power rests in Washington and serves Washington's goals. I went into researching this episode expecting to learn about domestic economic policy for the most part, and I did, but I actually really wasn't expecting MMT to sharpen my understanding of economic imperialism to the extent that it did. And now I, I almost want to do an episode on Bretton Woods, which was a conference that happened in 1944 that had some of the most famous ghoulish minds of the era, like Milton Friedman, along with people like uh, John Maynard Keynes. And they basically hashed out a post-war economically imperial framework for the United States. Uh, and a lot of the things that they set up then are still the ways that we enforce imperialism today. So that might honestly be a good idea for a future episode. Yeah, one of these days. Yeah. So if it, we if have it works... <clears throat> We have a lot in the backlog. Yeah. But if it works like a company, does that, does that mean it's subjected to, I guess, other foreign companies, uh, I guess, um, contracting resources from that country or uh, influencing their policy with money as well? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, corporations can always... So in that way, it's not sovereign as well? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like corporations can always use money to influence what happens within a state you know that's what money does it's ultimately an expression of state power and when you get money you get the chance to express the power that is outlined by the state um but what makes the state sovereign is that it can make as much of that money as it wants to at any given time so no matter how much money a corporation gets the state will always be more powerful this is not the case if you can't print your own money and you have to like get U.S. dollars. Now you're playing the same game as the companies, so your 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 actual right. state sovereignty is significantly reduced. And, and and like I said, limiting state power isn't necessarily a bad thing. But if we're talking about like the government of Zimbabwe, um, are we and, and like and like them changing their currency to the dollar? Are we talking about limiting the government the the power of the government so that the people have more democratic power over like what happens? Or, or that workplaces are democratized? Um, or are we talking about large multinational companies now exerting power or foreign governments exerting power? That's not really preferable to the local government having that sovereignty, in my opinion, because that's imperialism. Yeah, of course. Okay, I think we're on the same. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, thank you, Mark. So let's talk about what MMT does for us as advocates of, at least in the short term, social democratic policy. In the simplest sense, MMT takes questions that are usually financial, can we pay for it, and turns them into political questions, should the government do this? Let me explain what I mean. MMT tells us that the government can't run out of money, but that doesn't mean that the government should always spend as much as it wants all the time. There can be other adverse effects to quote-unquote printing money. I actually don't really like the term printing money um, because the government is constantly printing money and recirculating new bills and destroying old bills without changing the actual total amount of money in the economy. Um, really, technically, the government is creating money out of thin air anytime it spends it, regardless of whether that's covered by taxes. The, the word for when the government spends creates, creates money by spending it and doesn't cover that by taxes or incurring debt and just like quote unquote prints it, the official, the actual term for that is seniorage. And I, and I find that to be a much more accurate term for what I'm talking about. Um, and that, but there, but 
The point being, there are other adverse effects to this. For example, private firms operate in the day-to-day -day by spending money on resources and labor. This is also what the government does when it wants to do something. So if private firms are operating at some capacity, and then the government up and creates a whole bunch of new money out of nowhere and starts trying to buy stuff with it, you can end up in a situation where the government is competing with the private sector, which causes the price of those resources they're competing over to go up. If price increases are large and widespread enough, you have what's called inflation, the general raising of prices across the whole economy and the subsequent lessening of the value of the currency itself. Now, inflation is not always like a killer. The US economy pretty much always experiences at least a couple percentage points of inflation every year, and it's still working fine, I guess. Ish. But inflation that gets too high can create big problems. Um, mainly the fact that people can't really effectively save when their money is rapidly losing its value just sitting there. And this means that parents can't save for their kid's college or to buy a house. And it's not just a middle-class homeowner problem. Working-class people in America already struggle to save away just a few hundred dollars for an emergency car or healthcare expense. If the value of their $500 savings is now going down by 5, 10, 15% or even higher on a yearly basis, that's only going to make that saving problem worse. So inflation is an adverse effect that might limit how much the government wants to spend at a given time. But there's a really important difference between causing inflation and simply not being able to afford something. If you literally can't afford to give your citizens health care, then there's nothing really to discuss. If giving your citizens health care runs the risk of causing inflation, well, now it's a political question. If you're struggling to save up $500, $1,000 for a potential health care cost, then inflation can really fuck you up. But if the policy that causes the inflation also removes health care costs from the equation, then the trade-off maybe is worth it to you. And, you know, it depends on the particulars, but that's at least a potential outcome. And that's what MMT does for us. It opens up these more nuanced conversations about how the government can and should employ its economic power. Yeah, it's really interesting. In countries where the inflation is so high or the valuation of their own currency fluctuates a lot, like, yeah. I, think, I think you might have said it earlier, Zimbabwe. Um, yeah. Instead of saving for their kids' colleges, they will put a down payment on a piece of real estate mm -hmm. and just like pay that mortgage because they can't invest in their own country's currency and like have it be a, a, at a certain value at a certain time. Um, and real estate is the most stable thing. So yes, Hi hyperinflation. I'm sorry. You should. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Nice. Okay, go for it. Hyperinflation is is what happens when the rate of inflation um, is fifty percent or higher, which uh, basically just means that prices go up by 50% on a yearly basis across the whole economy. And once you hit like that hyperinflation point, it's really, really tough to reel it back in. And you often actually end up with really like absurd levels of inflation, like 2 million percent a year. Um, so prices going up by 20,000 times over the course of a year. And that's a situation that you had in Zimbabwe. And what they ultimately did was that they 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 dollarized they they adopted the US dollar as their currency and with that comes a dramatic loss in that state's sovereignty its ability to um express power uh because now they can't even they can't do seniorage like they like they would have uh, otherwise been able to do previously um and so that's that's like 
dollarization or the pegging of currencies to the dollar is one of the is one of like those big parts of like one of those very subtle but very widespread aspects of US imperialism that it's very easy to kind of see as economic charity if you're looking at it from a liberal perspective um which is kind of how a lot of neocolonialism works is that we're is that we're helping the other countries financially but really we're taking control of them and if you I'm talking about this for way too fucking long. I don't know why I'm on this fucking tangent. But if you look back at the old justifications for colonialism, you actually find that it's basically the same thing. Oh, like, you know, we're actually helping India by colonizing it because we're building schools and railroads. And people still make this argument for the British Empire today. So it's nothing has really changed. Yeah. What's a couple of schools if uh, you can sacrifice a light genocide? You know, yeah, apparently, yeah, apparently the like conservative estimate for the death toll of the British Empire in India is a billion isn't that almost it's that's about its population right now that's about yeah it's like 1.3 1. 1. like 1. 1.3 billion people live in india right now but this is over like 200 years yeah that might be for the whole british empire yeah, still, too it might not just it might not be india because they if the british empire was together today i think their population would be like two and a half billion we are so fucking off topic <laughs> anyways that's fine i'm always down to talk about the british empire because you know <laughs> a lot more about it than i do um so MMT also allows us to rethink how inflation works on the whole. The orthodox perspective on money is that it functions like other goods and has its own intrinsic value. If you look at it this way, then seniorage must necessarily cause inflation because you're making a good less scarce, which inherently reduces its value. Through MMT, we get a different understanding. It's not that the printing the money that creates inflation it's the fact that the government competes with private firms for resources and labor. This redefines how we think about taxes and debt. If the government wants to spend money on something that private firms are already buying, and it wants to avoid causing inflation, then it can remove some funds from the private sector, either by taking them in the form of taxes or borrowing them in the form of debt by basically issuing government bills and bonds, treasury notes. The point, though, isn't to reduce the number of dollars, but to reduce competition between the government and the firms. So taxing corporations directly is generally more likely to get you the desired effect. This also means that the government can print money and spend it without raising taxes and without incurring debt and without causing inflation if it does it just right. If it spends money without creating new competition with private firms, then there's no reason why inflation has to happen at all. If, for example, the government is using funds to build things the private sector wouldn't build otherwise, like interstate high-speed railways, or if it employs people that the private sector wouldn't otherwise employ, like people to build interstate high-speed railways, then it doesn't actually place inflationary pressure on the U.S. dollar. Okay, okay maybe, maybe it's simple. Uh, you know, maybe building a high-speed rail network would mean some competition, like for the steel or other resources or some of the land that they would have to use for it. But the point is that you only need to use taxes and debt to cover the cost of the things you're competing for, not the whole thing. The main idea I want to get across is that the question isn't financial anymore. We can do this if we want to. It's a matter of political will, which is a significantly easier hurdle to cross than simply not having the funds. Yo, could we take a pause for like just like two to three minutes? Do you have to let Nika in? No, this is just moving so fast, and I'm not comprehending. Yeah, it at yeah, all. yeah. No, 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 no. That's you. that's what I have you for. Please, please let let's let's get everything up to speed. Yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna lie. Like, I 
I was trying, I've been trying to like so where did switch it, different things to make. Where did I lose you? Um, I guess the competing with private firms means inflation doesn't actually occur because okay. I'm, I'm still on, I guess, the pea brain take that more money, less scarce, less value. So, okay. Um, basically, the way that we... And wait, yeah? isn't... And I'm I'm not crazy, right? Yeah. Money, all, all all the money in the U.S. has value because it's backed by Fort Knox, right? No, no, we're not on the gold standard, baby. Fiat currency. <clears throat> we haven't been on. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Bretton Woods Conference that I was talking about, that 1944 conference, it established the gold standard, and then Nixon in the 1970s actually took us off it completely, and so we're totally flying free, baby. It's not okay, backed by way behind. anything. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. It's not backed so by how'd gold. You, how'd, how'd we switch from gold to fiat? Whatever fiat we is. We just said it. Yeah, fiat just means that it's not backed by anything except for the word of the U.S. government. We did, we just said it. So we it, just we like took, it. took the uh, value at the time and then said, we're just going to start. This is our starting point. We're going to go from here. And then yeah, it's just changed okay yeah i mean the, the value um, of the u.s dollar has changed significantly in both up and down it's gone like a roller coaster since then okay so let's go back to the main point yeah how does seniorage as you say not cause inflation so because it doesn't necessarily value. cause inflation because money isn't a good it's money it's it's fundamentally different money isn't isn't like a good or a service it's an expression of the government's ability to take stuff that it wants um so really it's not so much the value of it's not so much how much money there is but how much money there is in relation to the stuff that's being bought and sold in the economy so basically the way that it works is that if there's x number of stuff flying around people you know i'm including people getting paid for work they're doing people buying stuff businesses buying stuff they're going to make into other stuff later, all that stuff, that's X. And then you have the amount of money that corresponds to all that, the amount of money that's used to move all that around is Y. If you increase Y without increasing X, then you have inflation. But you know what an X doesn't include is unemployed people who want to find work but can't because the private sector doesn't have any use for them. Um, public you know a bridge that isn't going to be built by the private sector because it's but because it's not profitable um so if the government is spending its money on these things where it's actually increasing the amount of stuff that's being done if things are getting built that wouldn't have been built otherwise people are employed that wouldn't have been employed otherwise then y can increase and x will also increase and that doesn't have to cause inflation okay just out of curiosity mm -hmm. what happens if X increases and Y stays the same. What if there's so much more productivity happening, but the dollar, the, the number but of the dollar supply of dollars stays US. the same? Uh, then you have what's called yeah. deflation, which is really, really, really bad. Because what happens when you have deflation is that, like, you make $10 an hour, you owe $100 in debt. So you owe 10 hours of work. Now, mm -hmm. the price of everything falls deflation so it's the opposite of inflation is when prices go up deflation is when prices go down um 
And so generally when there's deflation, you also have a loss of wages because labor is also a thing with a price. Your wages is the price of labor. So that's going down too. Now let's say you make $5 an hour. Well, shit, your debt stayed the same. Now you owe $20 worth of labor instead of 10. So for people who are currently indebted, deflation will massacre you. It's really, really, really bad thing. Um, and it will, it will just like tear an economy to shreds, uh, which is why it doesn't happen particularly often. Inflation is much more common. Um, if deflation happens, like you're, 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 that's a, that can, that can actually be a killer for an economy. That's really, really bad. You want to avoid that. Okay. So that's nominal and it stays the same. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Thank you, Mark. I think my macroeconomics professor <laughs> in, back in college is just <laughs> shaking his head. Actually, he's probably playing, um, oh, not because of COVID, but if COVID wasn't existing, he'd be playing bongos in a cafe. Well, it, that's just who. Is this This is, this is Oh, God. This is What a fucking man. He started every morning with, like, Beatles music or didn't he, Bob Dylan music. Didn't he bring, like, an tail. ounce of weed into class to show everyone? I don't think it was a whole ounce. I think it was like an eighth or something, but he just pulled out weed. He's like, yeah, I got this in Colorado. It was totally legal. And everyone's just saying like, (laughs) it's not legal here, baby. (laughs) Man, this this is is bold. That's bold. Is that an open container? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, yeah. He's a gem though. So I hope that all makes sense for people that I'm going to edit the shit out of that whole explanation. And it's going to, it's going to (laughs) be way more concise. It's going to take like, like this whole co- th- that whole conversation is going to be like 4 minutes for the people that actually listen on recording and it was like 20 minutes <laughs> just to, trying to think of good <laughs> ways to get certain ideas across. I fucking economics, man. It's like it's like made opaque on purpose so that nobody wants to talk about it. And it's it's like what they said in the big short, like they make the language that they use to talk about finance and economics intentionally hard to understand and really boring so that nobody wants to understand it. And we actually like we have to actively fight that. So that um, we don't just like leave these people to their own devices because they are fucking ghouls and they are not to be trusted. Okay. We just did a lot of, <laughs> lot of talking, yeah. but what I really want to do is sit down with a nice, nice truly or something, you know, a little seltzer action oh God. and then watch two brain dead 70 year olds, um, yell at yes. each other actually maybe not because they can mute trump's yes. microphone but basically is what i'm saying i want to take a break and watch the debate yeah you're right it's, a, it's almost it's almost nine Thursday. okay let's let's take a little bit of a let, let's take a little bit of a break okay do you want to dip and then come back <laughs> so hey we're back we just finished watching the debate um, and we actually also just finished talking about the debate, even though you probably heard the conversation we had about 45 minutes ago. Time, man. It's fucking crazy. It's anyway, if I if, if, if so, so I, I think I just had a traumatic experience. I actually can't really remember what happened over the last two hours uh, at all. So I feel like we've just finished our extended conversation about um how inflation is actually caused when it comes to government spending as opposed to the orthodox view. Um, So I think we're going to keep going just from there. So 
You might guess from what you've heard so far that MMT and its implications make a lot of people uncomfortable and even angry. You know the type. Like a middle to upper middle class dude who studied econ in college because his high school teacher showed him a supply demand curve and he never really got over how pretty and symmetrical it was. Basically me. If you ever see a guy that reminds you of me, chances are he hates MMT because he's an idiot and a ghoul and his college education consisted entirely of propaganda. Regardless, MMT has been the subject of a lot of criticism, and while it's my opinion that these critiques are fairly unconvincing, we're going to go over some of the most common ones that I saw in my research. And I actually remembered earlier that I forgot to add one in, so we're just going to put that one at the end. Um, so remind me not to forget that one, because that's an important, it's actually probably the most important one. So okay, for the purpose of, you know, responding to critiques, we're going to be looking at a series of blog posts written by Bill Mitchell, one of the economists we mentioned earlier on his economics blog. So I know a blog is not like the most academic source of site, but Mitchell, even more than Randall Ray and Warren Mosley, wrote the book on MMT, literally the book. If, 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 you, if you go online and you search for how to learn MMT, the first book of recommendation you're going to get is a textbook called Macroeconomics um, that, is, that is written by um, Bill Mitchell and also Randall Ray and Warren Mosley. They're like the, the big guys. It might not be Warren Mosley. I might have that mixed up. Um, but Mitchell is like, Mitchell is super head honcho. He's probably the single most prolific contributor to MMT in the world. And many of the critiques levied at his theory stem not really from a disagreement over hard data, but from misconceptions about what MMT is and says. Um, and as I was doing research for the episode, I was reading all about MMT from Bill Mitchell and Randall Ray, and I was reading the critiques from various people. And for a list of reasons, the critiques just felt very inadequate to me. And upon looking into Mitchell's blog, I found that he was echoing many of the responses that I was kind of forming in my head which makes me feel a lot more comfortable about um, kind of giving them as responses on recording. So the particular series of posts that uh, I mostly looked into for this section uh, is Bill Mitchell's response to a German critic named Martin Hopner, who is a political scientist uh, working at the Max Planck Institute, which is a German um, like think tank. Uh, and something you immediately notice about critics of MMT, and Hopner included, is that they rarely argue against the actual central premise of MMT. The main thrust of MMT is that there's a fundamental difference between an entity that issues a currency, like a state, and an entity that uses that currency, in that the issuer can produce as much of the currency as it likes and is therefore not financially constrained. And it follows from this that actions taken to balance the budget, such as levying taxes and issuing debt, are taken not really to cover the costs of the spending, but to minimize adverse effects like inflation. Hopner doesn't really even attempt to argue that either of these points is untrue. So what's the problem? Well, Hopner doesn't like the policy prescriptions so often championed by proponents of MMT. These include, first, the idea that nations should adopt floating exchange rates. So a floating exchange rate basically means that the rate at which one nation's currency is convertible to another nation's currency can change at times. For example, sometimes the British pound is worth $1.5, sometimes it's worth $1.3, and the fact that these values regularly change is the result of these nations both having floating exchange rates. By comparison, Hong Kong has a fixed exchange rate, 
because its currency is pegged to the U.S. dollar. So a Hong Kong dollar is worth 13 cents in American dollars, and that value hasn't changed since 1998. The second prescription that Hopner disagrees with is the idea that the issuance of government debt in the form of like treasury bonds, for example, is not a necessary aspect of monetary policy. Hopner agrees that debt doesn't actually finance government spending, but he thinks its issuance is important anyway, and we'll talk about why in a minute. The third and final of his major critiques is that MMT is a dangerous idea, even if it's true, as citizens and governments would lose sight of the ability to run their monetary systems responsibly if MMT became common knowledge. Let's say how Mitchell responds to these one by one. On the subject of floating exchange rates, Hopner argues that if the exchange rate between your currency and foreign currencies is allowed to change, that this can cause inflation, particularly if the value of your currency goes down in relation to other currencies. That would be inflationary, you know, because your currency is worth less in comparison to other things than it used to be. Mitchell responds by saying that the relationship between exchange rates and inflation isn't one-to-one. In fact, there's a measurement of exactly how much changes in the exchange rate affect inflation, and that's called pass-through. Essentially, your pass-through is going to be higher the more your country relies on international trade to get its goods. And the reality is that for a lot of countries, domestic prices are fairly independent of what's going on in international markets. This is because when you get down to it, consumers are generally buying things domestically. Services especially are really difficult to import, uh, at least a lot of them are. What this means is that even even though a falling exchange rate can make it difficult to buy foreign goods, Even a relatively large decline won't have too big of an effect on domestic prices if the pass-through is low. So floating exchange rates can cause some inflationary pressure, but it shouldn't usually be like the deciding factor. In Bill Mitchell's home country of Australia, for example, there's a pass-through of about 10%. And what this means is that if the value of the Australian dollar internationally falls by, say, 10%, you would have a pass-through of 10% of that 10%, which means the price of goods goes up on average about 1%. And if the thing that causes your exchange rate to fall was your government running a deficit to maintain full employment, or you know, some other form of government spending that makes people's lives better, then that's probably a worthwhile trade-off. In fact, fixed rates, which is when your um, currency is pegged to another currency or pegged to the price of gold, for example, um, those can actually be significantly more damaging because now the government is sacrificing its power as a currency issuer, which means it can't always spend as much as it needs to. And that can worsen and even create recessions. So we already established that in order to have what you called not printing money, but seniorage, right? Yeah. Because we're not replacing old fucked up dollars. We're printing new money. Right. We're, we're, yeah, there is now more money in circulation than there used right. to. Right. In order for that not to cause inflation, we got to have like an equal amount of um, domestic productivity. Right. You said yes. So as as not to cause inflation. So I guess internationally, right, you can have floating exchange rates if your international trade is in direct correlation with it. Correct. Um. Well, it's it's really more that so so you could like make your domestic policy so that even if you have a floating exchange rate it stays relatively stable but really the point is that we shouldn't be worrying too hard about it at all like it's okay for your currency to debase a little bit um as long as as long as um you're doing it for good reasons as long as first of all 
that that exchange rate falling isn't having too big of an effect on your prices. Um, so most countries, this would be the case. You would have a relatively low pass through. So like even if your exchange rate falls by a lot, uh, it's not getting you're not really getting too much inflation. Um, and the other thing that you have to make sure of is that the reasons why like the, your your deficit spending, the reason why your currency is potentially being debased, is for a good reason. Are you doing it to give people universal health care? Are you doing it to maintain full employment? Are you doing it to build some important infrastructure? Those are all good reasons. But if you're doing it to like give oil subsidies, then fuck that shit. Like that's not worth the inflation. You can go fuck themselves. Yeah, I think we're all on the same page about uh, worthwhile policy yeah. for sure. So on the subject of government debt, mm -hmm. Hopner argues that government bonds are not just useful for when the government wants to cover its spending. They're also solid investments that people generally like to have in their retirement portfolios. Hopner further argues that, a, that running deficits can make government bonds riskier investments. These things are both totally true, but once again, they don't actually contradict MMT. They just, you know, reflect the actual kinds of conversations we should be having concerning the real effects of state spending, the kind of conversations we would be having all the time if MMT was already widely accepted. Because right now, when we talk about debt, we talk about covering spending, you know? On the subject of MMT being a dangerous idea, Hopner argues that the idea that the government has the same financial constraints as a company or a household, an idea that's not true, an idea that Hopner has already admitted is not true, is the only thing keeping governments from running off a cliff with irresponsible policy. He claims that people need to be encouraged to maintain this fiction so that they won't get entitled and ask their government for too much and end up ruining their own economies. I don't really know what I'm supposed to say to something like that. Mitchell basically says for the thousandth time that MMT has never asserted that there are no adverse effects to running deficits. And there, I just don't think there's any reason why people who understand not having enough money can't understand why doing a thing might cause problems for other reasons. And I just, it kind of speaks to me to like the inherent um, misanthropy to like the neoliberal position in general where like you have this select few humans who by way of being like captains of industry of like business leaders that they've kind of earned the right to affect the world and everyone else is like basically just like a dumb sheep like because that's kind of the feel i'm getting from this take of hopner's and it's deeply misanthropic and misanthropy the general hatred and just like not giving a shit about people is, in my opinion, the soul of authoritarianism. And so I think it ultimately speaks to the authoritarianism of uh, capitalist systems of distribution. Right. And if you're steeped in that, you're probably not going to really give much of a shit about um, providing healthcare to people yeah. or really doing anything that doesn't uh, turn a profit. Yeah, because once you accept the idea that like that, like the average person is, you know, not really doing a whole lot for the world then then you that can really sour the effect of like being a utilitarian because once you're once you're like if you like want to be a utilitarian and there's people out there who are like totally useless then you can start to like justify like ah uh, you know we don't have to give them health care because they're not they're not going to like give back to the system anyway it's just it's a 
it's a real like that's the dangerous idea in my opinion yeah. is the idea that people should be kept in the dark because they're too stupid to use the truth responsibly um i don't think that there's ever been a case really and maybe, maybe in some like really esoteric situations but for the most part i don't think there's ever a case uh where i think it is less moral and less responsible for the future of a nation to keep its people in the dark about fundamental truths about how the nation functions yeah i guess it depends on what you want out of a country or a society do you want it to be um do you want do you want your personal safety to be held above all else do you want your country to be dominant militarily like do you tie your own sense of self-worth to your country's um dominance in the world if, if so then honestly you're, you're probably you're probably pretty happy right now if you care about i don't know your fellow man or like the person sitting next to you or maybe future generations if you have any shred of empathy you might be a little put off by the current state of things you know and that's also why it, it really it really makes me not angry just sad when people say like there's um we don't need like empathy in politics yeah like okay we don't sure we don't need empathy let's not have morals either like okay yeah let's have let's have a government that doesn't have any interest in understanding what it's like to live under the government that's a fucking great idea i honestly wish we could give every congress make every congressman live off of minimum wage if they're if they're public servants and they can decide what people can live on then they can live on that too yeah let's put the servant back in public servant that's what i'm saying <laughs> mark the podcaster uh, wait. so there's one um there's one there's one more critique uh that i haven't actually written a script for i just forgot when i was finishing up the script earlier today so we're gonna do this one totally off the dome totally we're we're, we're, we're freestyling right now so basically there is this idea called the crowding out effect the crowding out effect is basically um the idea that when the government spends money, this causes interest rates to rise. So what that means is that um, when uh, you want to take out money to, you want to take out a loan so that you can make an investment. Let's say you're a big business, right? You want to take out, uh, you will take out smaller loans. You will not take out loans that you might have taken out otherwise. And basically, so whenever the government spends money, you end up stop inherently stifling the private sector from doing what it's going to do um this is a commonly understood like concept among mainstream economics and i it's an idea that i came across a couple times in my reading and what i noticed and i feel comfortable asserting this because mitchell has echoed this in some of his blog posts is that there's a there's a there's a sleight of hand that goes on when people talk about the crowding out effect and that is that what actually causes the interest rates to rise isn't the government spending the money it's the government incurring debt it's the government issuing more bonds that's not a thing that according to mmt the government has to do the government only actually has to do that if you assume mmt is wrong and the government has to cover its spending by incurring debt or by taking taxes but in this case incurring debt so there's like a little sleight of hand there. It's not, it's not the actual spending that does it. It's the debt. So um, basically, one, 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 once again, um, like 
there are adverse effects of spending, you can crowd out, um, like private industry. And that's, you know, one of the things that can cause inflation, but it's not as much like a law of physics when it comes to government spending as is often, uh, basically argued. And that's basically the crowd. That's basically, um, you know, um, big brained genius socialist cat boy dunks on the entire Bretton Woods conference. I'm so proud of you. You know, I once heard that um, economics is like astrology for dudes. And I think that makes <laughs> sense because like astrology, I don't understand economics. So I appreciate this episode, Mark. That was did you did you do you feel like you learned anything? Is there anything that I can help you with a little well, bit more before we finish up? I think that can be uh best assessed by the ratio the like the um the general percentage of time I spent rubbing my <laughs> forehead during this episode, which was quite a fair amount. I know, I know. But, I'm so but sorry. We did I circle really back. tried my best. We did circle back. My my brain yeah. does hurt, but I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think. Do you think? Here, wait. Okay, I'm so fucking sorry that I'm about to do this to you. I'm a bad friend, but I am gonna put you on the spot right now. Let's say, let's say, okay. Let's say that you, okay, you, 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 you leave the recording. You leave the, you leave your high definition, high, high tech recording studio, and you go and see Nicole, and she goes, "What was the episode about?" And you say, "MMT." And she goes, or you say modern monetary theory. And she says, Alex, what's modern monetary theory? What do you say to her? Okay, let me just skim through the script to try. <laughs> I feel I feel the same anxiety oh that I do before this, any college if this test episode I've ever taken. was a complete failure, please let us know on Twitter. And we will maybe just never talk about technical econ ever again. <laughs> um because this shit is, I mean, all the language that is used to talk about it is made intentionally boring and opaque and like kind of hard to understand. And I understand why people don't like talking about it. I thought it was important. Um, but let us know if, 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 if you just could not fucking understand what was going on in this episode. Okay, so inflation is so, fake, okay, let's hear it. except when it is. And when it is, it's okay if it's worth it for certain things. Correct inflation is real but it's caused in a slightly different way than we debt isn't real debt isn't money isn't real it's ultimately money that's not real i feel like debt isn't scary yeah yeah debt debt isn't scary deficits aren't scary or at least you know they shouldn't universally be i'm sorry i should let you go what you think i got shit to do tonight no i mean let you talk (laughs) I'm just desperate to get out of the hot seat. I'm so sorry. Okay, okay, no, that's uh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ! All right, this is, this has already been going on for way too long. Uh, I have given myself a lot of work to do tomorrow, so I say we give everyone a fucking rest and plug our shit, and then fuck off. God, I wanted nothing more than to plug my shit this whole time. Let me see. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> you can. Tell us how confusing this episode was on Twitter at We Read Theory Pod. You can also make a post on Reddit about how um, this episode gave you brainworms um, on Reddit uh, at r slash We Read Theory Pod. 
Um, you can contact Mark at 585-71. I'm just kidding. I don't know your actual phone number by heart. I don't know anyone. I think this is the second time you've done that gag. Are you serious? I think you've done that gag before. Okay, well, anyone anyone who knows me better than an acquaintance will tell you that I have a terrible, awful memory and need calendars and writing things down on my hands to make it through daily life. <laughs> I think that's all of our pluggables. I think that's the, the, the long and short of it. That's all pluggables? Yeah. Uh, oh, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. Yes. I haven't said that yes, in a please. long time. That's oh, how people find we, us. We absolutely love the ratings. I read all of them. They genuinely make me feel so, so, so good. It's like an electric hug. <laughs> and I can't get real hugs during COVID. So that's as good as it gets. Please. You're so beautiful. Please. <laughs> we're not you're not pandering though not pandering <laughs> definitely i've never pandered in my life all right all right this episode's too long um yeah okay Oops. thank all you right, right, right. for listening i love you all and if i don't see you good afternoon good evening and good night